welcome back to the Hi-Fi Podcast with Darren and Duncan, and I'm Darren. I'm Duncan. And today, we're just going to be answering questions. Yeah. That's all we're going to be doing. Tossing it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, we're going to even toss it up further with two album recommendations at the end. So you might have to stay tuned for that. Well, it's a unique episode, and um, to get things kicked off, uh, Duncan, what's uh, going on with you? What is going on with me? Yes, uh, last week I shared my terrible Thanksgiving story uh, that ended up as a great opportunity to uh, do some projects. Got this subwoofer that's uh, waiting for next, I guess. Yeah, it'll be the um, the filters to um, input into the mini DSP and then just start getting it off the ground in terms of placement. Um, but yeah, just as a dad of a six-year-old and a six-month-old, I didn't really touch it too much this week. Just kind of looked at it. It's a beautiful little subwoofer just waiting for, for uh, life. Some bi-quads. Bi-quads to breathe life into it. Yeah. 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 Right. And, uh, but this week, um, I did get, uh, some, some pretty good listening in, in a couple sessions and I don't know what prompted this. Um, but like I have had, uh, just a, a bag of tubes that I've been waiting I don't know why I've been waiting. I just haven't listened to them. And so I took the chance to uh, do some tube rolling. I guess it was our preamp talk. Um, preamps last week, if you missed that episode, it's an awesome episode. We actually got so much feedback from it from folks echoing our feelings, from folks who had just tried a new uh, preamp and were astonished at the you know the sound impact. and Yeah. And then, uh, and then some folks that are thinking about adding tubes and that we'll kind of answering things. some of those questions. We will. Yes. Episode. Yep. And so, uh, in that spirit, I just kind of was like, yeah, I'm going to see what kind of spices I have in the rack here. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a pair of, uh, bugle boy, uh, 60 J eights. So this is, you know, made from my, these are my favorite kind of tubes made from my favorite factory the hurley holland factory you know this is like teasing me now <laughs> oh well because i didn't get to hear it oh well, maybe i'll get into that yeah all right in a second but yeah so uh yeah i will be i will have to get into it because it's going to echo my experiences too um but what i'm talking about here is is a plant in uh, holland in herlin holland that produced amperex tubes for many many years and under so many different brands too not just like branded amperex but like branded you know valvo motorola like all kinds of different you know oem brands on it but it'll be like the same tubes um I've talked about how I love the uh, uh, early 60s orange globe tubes from that factory, but I'd never uh, listened to the 50s, 1950s era Bugle Boys. And of course, you know, anybody who's in NOS train, they know, they know Bugle Boys and they've, people talk about them. They're, they're loved. They're not the most rare tubes. A uh, bunch of them were made, um, but they just have great characteristics. So I put a pair in and uh as i was putting them in i'm looking at the the pins and uh they're pretty 
pretty dark and corroded, and then a couple of them had some white stuff on them. I I don't know. It just looked a little scary. So I I uh, quickly brushed them with a little deoxit and and put them in. And uh, initially, when I fired up the preamp, one channel was a little quiet, and I um, and so I was thinking, oh, this is maybe not a good tube. So I pulled out my tube tester, turned everything off, put the tubes in, both tested fine. Uh, hmm, okay. And I'm thinking, well, you know, these, these pins look terrible. You know, it's gotta be something like that. And so, uh, so I, I just kind of like moved them around a little bit. I'd say pull them up a little bit in the socket so that they're, you know, maybe engaged a little more and then great. You know, I, it was, it was, it, it it was great, and then I could start listening to them, and it was immediate and noticeable from the di- from another room. I'm listening to some of my favorite center vocal tracks of recent, uh, you know, like the Bedouin Waysides album that we shared, the um, mm-hmm. Coulter Walls album, Songs from the Plain, a um, couple of those. One of the things that that struck me about the Coulter Wall, uh, which is just such a great baritone voice that comes through so clear in the center was uh two things uh the presentation was just slightly drier than i was uh used to but it was so much more dimensional and then uh extra elements extra details not not in the treble details in the mid-range were really coming out and just like so so good and just seductive and uh and man i had a ball uh, that night just listening, you know, my family's doing other stuff and I'm just like in my own head, like, this is so good. And of course, you know, they don't (laughs) care about that. So I was like waiting to talk to you about it. Well, the next morning, uh, I fired it up again. And as soon as the preamp came out of warm up, you know, in my left channel, I'm just like, no. And so, uh, a bit crestfallen, you know, I, I hit the mute button, turned the thing off, and I'm like, I, I think I even yelled up to my wife, her her daytime office is in our room, and I was like, well, these awesome tubes, one of them died. That's how it goes. <laughs> and she's, I don't even think she even said anything. She's like, uh-huh. And, uh, you know, a bit crestfallen, but <clears throat> I was uh, intrigued enough to to literally jump right on the internet go to audiotubes.com which is brent jesse recording and supply um i i love that website it's lots of information about tubes lots of tubes that you can buy but he has this section i think i mentioned it before called butt ugly tubes where uh you can get off-brand tubes of exactly the type you're looking for they just they're not pretty you know they don't have the pretty bugle boy logos but they are bugle boys because that it come from that factory. They got the date stamp. They got the made in uh, Hurley and Holland. They've got mm. everything. And so I'm, uh, Brent called me back. We were talking and I ordered a pair and I told him, I, you know, this is based on basically like one evening of listening. Like I, I just had to have some tubes and, uh, and I was going back inside, uh, and it just struck me, you know what? I bet it's, I bet it's the corrosion on the pins. Like, I, I, cause they both test fine. I, I'm going to, I'm going to try this again. And so this time I got serious. I got, I have deoxit, um, uh, D 100 L, uh, which is actually, uh, the red stuff and, and it will dissolve corrosion. 
and uh, I have G100L, which is deoxid gold. And so I took a wire brush and put the red deoxid on there and then uh, scrubbed it a bunch and then mm. uh, coated it with uh, uh, deoxid gold, popped them back in. Perfect. You know, and mm. um, and then the next day I had the same situation. And, and this time I just, instead of pulling them out and doing that whole thing, I just moved it a little bit and uh, took the mute off and then it was fine. So I start texting you, of course. I'm like, dude, you got to hear these on the preamp. Oh, my goodness. And so I said, okay, uh, when we do our podcast on Tuesday, I'm going to bring these over. Fast forward to tonight. How many times did we try to get them to work in your preamps? Two different preamps. Four times on that preamp. Yeah. Uh, I even, I swapped them. We, we even, I gently like teased the, the pins apart so that they would kind of splay out so that it, w- it would cause constant pressure on the jacks. Um, we went to your other preamp, um, that, that you've modified actually just kind of a, a personal thing. And so we were thinking maybe this one and, uh, and I just couldn't get it every single time. Yeah. It was either, uh, a, a lack of something in one channel or a, a really loud, you know, sound. What we did notice is that it, it, we could get it to change by moving the pins. So we think maybe that's still it, but basically I'm gonna have to wait till I get those tubes from AudioTubes.com that are known good and matched. Um, mm. then I'm going to bring those over. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to have some fun, but I was, I was a bit sad tonight cause you didn't get to hear it. And you and I were both very curious uh, how it would sound on the world's most revealing system over the, here. The, the one channel sounded great. <laughs> yeah, right. It sounded good. It was, yeah. It, it was, was fine. Yeah, you, we, we need to play some mono Frank Sinatra. There you go. It, you know? <laughs> That'll do it. Anyway, I was a little bummed about that. but Yeah, I was too. But that's um, how yeah. tweaks go. I mean, we spent yeah. you know, a, good, a good amount of time and just throwing ourselves against the wall and, and then ultimately yeah. gave up. And we're going to try again when we get a matched pair that's... Yeah, the um, the actual tube itself looks very new. You know, right? like the, all the printing looks The labels super are clean. solid. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know, man. So, so. But I've, ha- I've been having this experience because I moved from using the Tungsram 7DJ8s that you use in here to that. And that was just such a fun uh, experience. You know, the Tungsrams have... Um, a more sparkly top end, but that's, but there is some just seductive something or other in those other tubes and in the lower ranges that, that made me really prefer that in my system. So I can't wait till I get those should be here any day, probably tomorrow, just not, not good time, but we'll bring them over next week. And, and, uh, yeah, I did some listening to that. Um, my coworker mentioned making cables made me some XLRs. Ugh, those are incredible. I did notice, you know, they weren't shielded. So between my preamp and my amp, um, I had a little bit of a hum between my DAC and my pre nothing whatsoever. And so that's where they live. Um, it's a cool design. It's, I realized actually it's not, it's not, uh, has nothing to do with the Gertz patent. It's really just, um, it's really a unique design with uh, with solid uh, silver conductors and a flat ribbon uh, ground plane. It's very cool, very cool design. So, I've been I've been tweaking for sure. Um, 
as I do. Tweak Taylor. Yeah, when are you not tweaking? Well, I have audiophile restless rest audiophile syndrome, aka uh, tweakitis. So yeah, you I do. can't. I can't. Not. I don't take any medication for it either. So it's it's uh, music. You take music. That's your medication. <laughs> yeah, it's untreatable. And uh, some people's religion, it's your medication. It's a disease I don't want to get rid of. So, yeah. So, um, you know, whenever you have a positive change in your system, all you want to do is listen, 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 listen. Listen to your favorite stuff. Listen to new stuff. That's the new benchmark. That's where we are. I love it. So, yeah, I've been having fun, man. Um, That's it. Oh, my desktop system is just rocking. I, um, I, I wrote a long piece today. Um, for work, I work at the music room. I'm a writer and uh, kind of reviewer, listener, tester. Um, and uh, so I wrote a big manifesto on why power cables matter. Of course, you know, it's a topic I love, topic you and I both love mm-hmm. um, that we've been fleshing out for a long time on this podcast. And um, one of our emailers uh, implied in the midst of a power cable question that there must be many out there who are sick and tired of hearing about it. Well, I don't care. It's, it's such a big thing. And one of the, one of the major elements of my article that I wrote today was, was starting from the point of view that you have in audio, that it's kind of hard to be, it's hard to know where to start as a beginner audiophile in today's day and age because of the absolute proliferation of information and opinion available online it's like one of your first jobs is really to figure out who to who to trust what voices to trust and where to go and i mentioned that there's two sides of audio there's the traditional stuff that uh, revolves around setup speaker amp synergy subwoofer integration room uh influence and mitigation and all of this stuff that's that's you know kind of easy to wrap your head around then there's the periphery of audio you know, beeswax fuses, carbon fiber platforms, basically anything that Bybee makes, you know, Schumann, Schumann resonators. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to a lesser extent, you know, the influence of cables and start, start going into the why of the power cable, but wrapping it up with, you know, this really shouldn't be a periphery item. It's, it's so elemental in, in the whole scheme of what we're trying to do because of, you know, the way that that currents move in a system uh, most most devices are constant current devices you know an amp's not and and um you know and and you know the the connection from the wall to the distributor the connection from all this stuff so really was able to get into that and then kind of sum it up by saying you know this this shouldn't be relegated to just the periphery because it it, it really um is a foundational thing i also talked at length about grounding and and the increasing uh need for mitigation of rf in 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 our systems and and you know how how you kind of like pay attention to the grounding scheme of your cables and connected equipment and that kind of thing we've got lots of podcasts about this topic for those uh those interested to hear further but um, in, yeah, in this, in this kind of vein, I was able to flesh that out. I remember where I got started, but that's it. That is what's going on with me. Cause I really poured a lot into that, uh, in the last couple of days. And, um, yeah, so been having a very, very audiophile week as always. Cool. And, uh, that's probably it for me. What's been going nice. on with you, Darren, this week? Uh, I've been really deep into work um designing 
a uh, phono stage. Yeah. So um, first time we're talking about it. It is. Um, you know, and I'm I'm not here to sell something. I'm I'm here to just kind of it's it's a journal entry more more than uh, anything else. So. Darren is senior analog design engineer for PS Audio, and one of his most famous products. Um, well, well awarded products was the, uh, stereophiles analog product of the year, which was the stellar phono pre. So this is a new, uh, preamplifier, but it's notable. You're not selling anything. It's notable because you've made a name for yourself as a, as a phono preamplifier designer. Well, it's, it's notable in this, in this, uh, in this part of the, uh, podcast because, uh, you know, when I'm really deep into a product design, it starts to become my life a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I start, uh, you know, I get really personal with these designs. Uh, and, you know, down to, you know, the circuit design to how it sounds, it really matters a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there's a thousand ways, you know, you can skin the cat with this stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Can only so, imagine. you know, it's, it's still that, you know, idea of that. I'm still trying to find, you know, my voice. Um, you know, I, I, I'm relatively, you know, new and I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, solidify the direction I want to go with various components but the thing is, <clears throat> is that you can't come up with one method of circuit design for every component. Yeah. So um, what's interesting is that my route of designing a power amplifier is rather the opposite of like a phono preamplifier, mm. for instance, um, in the sense that um, I don't think that you know, feedback is necessary in a lot of, uh, you know, far upstream, uh, signal paths. Hmm. Um, and one of the reasons is that, you know, it is possible to get the linearity that you need, uh, without any global feedback, Hmm. uh, in the upstream stuff, uh, source stuff. Yeah. Source stuff. Even, even in preamplifiers, uh, you don't really need, global feedback as you know i mean the bhk preamp for instance there's zero global and yeah you know it measures pretty well you know Mm -hmm. um so you know but with power amplifiers i uh i do not i do not believe in zero global for power amplifiers Mm -hmm. and the reason is is that you're trying to uh you're trying to drive an incredibly you know complex and and low impedance load yeah and in order to correct some of the parasitics of the output stage, you have to have feedback. Every other device is driving a high impedance load. Yeah. Now, the complication is that I'm not really, I'm not like anti, you know, global feedback, obviously. Yeah. So that's, that's like a complication. It's, it's because um, p- people want to draw that conclusion right away when I make something that doesn't have global feedback, they're like, Oh, well you must hate global feedback. And it's like, well, 
Not really. Well, people want to simplify. You know, yeah, I mean, a, a, an argument to a, a really black and white stance. If right, if they're not fully understanding the nuances. Um the the thing about it is that generally what you do with global feedback is that you create some sort of what we call open loop signal path. Mm-hmm. And that open loop signal path usually has, uh, you know, like really high gain because you start using that gain to generate negative feedback. Um, but it also has a certain linearity attached to that, which, which essentially is, you know, linearity meaning, uh, you know, distortion uh, versus frequency and also bandwidth. Um, that those are like two basic, you know, elements of linearity that we can talk about sure. on a real ba- base level. Um, and those, those elements, uh, I always think should be maximized. Um, and the, the, as, as far as performance wise, but the aspect of creating some sort of component that has zero global feedback, but still measures very well means that that is the linearity of the open loop path. Yeah. You have to sell out to have that open loop be gain be yeah. as linear as possible. So any, anyone who's yeah. had an amp with a feedback knob, you know that the gain is reduced as you increase feedback. So you're, you're right. Right. You're yep. degenerate. So, so what you're saying is you, if, if you're doing this scheme, you've got to give yourself more gain uh, if it's not linear and then squash it down, it becomes more linear and you get less gain than you reach your gain profile. When you, and you reach when your you linearity, use global feedback, like, that's what you're doing. The traditional way. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but a, and better, a lot of times the, the linearity of the open loop path is compromised for one reason or the other. Um, a lot of times to be honest with you for like not even good reasons. Hmm. Um, there's not even a good reason to compromise the linearity. Um, I mean, I hate to put it that way, but, um, you know, there, there are certain situations that, uh, designers just don't know any better. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it that they're not focused on that because they know they can hit some sort of number with the global feedback. Yep. It doesn't matter. Right. So they kind of move on to other I, elements. I, I think it, I think it does matter. Yeah, I think that you uh, in these really critical upstream paths where we have a ton of gain after that, meaning there's basically a magnifying glass on that component. Yeah, in the system that you should really shoot for ultimate linearity without any sort of correction, aka feedback. Okay, so you're saying and. Do it the right way first. Yeah, that's don't, all I'm don't saying. Use I'm not the trick. I'm not saying <laughs> that feedback is bad. Right. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I don't. I don't believe that there's any sort of. There's no conspiracy around negative feedback. There's no oddities. I've had people ask me tons of questions around. Um, for some reason, a, a really common one is that feedback introduces some sort of timing error because you're basically creating an error and then re- and then you're you're correcting that after the fact mm-hmm. which is a logical way of thinking about it but all that's happening at the speed of light i was going to say cuz you yeah, start yeah. thinking about the distances and you're like well it has to travel through the whole circuit again right 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 but it's just at the speed of light so yeah. it's like so far away from the speed of sound it 
it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, so so you know it's it's fine to think about those things, and I think it's healthy to think about those logical arguments and those theoretical things. But I will tell you that there's no conspiracy against negative feedback. There's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that I think it's it is better to like not make the mistake to begin with. Yeah, I don't understand why not just. Just don't make the mistakes. And the problem is, is that it's difficult. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to make the mistakes. And it comes down to even auditioning like tons and tons of transistors Hmm. um, to understand their linearity and to understand the the nonlinear distortions that they're they're inducing into the the audio uh, path. And so I've really, I'm down to... You know, I don't just use a transistor because it works or it's cheap or it's a generalized solution for this application. I'm using it because it, it you know, increases my distortion performance by a factor of 10 or something over some random transistor. Without feedback. You know, it's, yeah. yeah, so every component is picked based yeah. on linearity. Gotcha. Um, and this is kind of what this next phono stage is about. It It, it exceeds the performance of the Stellar phono without any feedback so So it's so it's even better lower distortion wider bandwidth than uh the stellar phono and the stellar phono uses negative feedback and this does not that's crazy so uh so that's really the focus around this project and uh you know it's been i've been working on it for a long time yeah um you know and i kind of start projects way before I finish another, you know, like I'm kind of like right now I'm, I'm working on a few parallel a few. projects for yeah. instance. Um, Some very so th- this one was something that was starting to cook back in the N1200 days. Yeah. Um, and, and now is, uh, you know, pretty far along at this point. And, uh, and so I, I've been experimenting with that and this is kind of the first time I've, I've, I've talked about it uh, in that way. Um, and then the the other aspect to it is, is that it has uh, current and voltage uh, inputs. This thing's gonna be so cool. And so the current input yes. is unique because a lot of preamps, phono preamps, don't have current inputs. Some right. of them do. Uh, Channel D, Sutherland, you know th- these companies, uh, CH Precision have come out with products that have current inputs. So it's not something new. Okay. What's new about it is that it also doesn't use feedback. And what is uh, kind of odd about that is that the whole scheme, the whole way that those current inputs work is negative feedback. Hmm. So uh, a transimpedance amplifier generally, like the most common topology of a of a uh a transimpedance amplifier is the fact that you are using what's called a virtual ground and the virtual ground is where you use an op amp and you go directly into its inverting input and because you're going into the inverting input uh and you have the feedback coming right off of that because that amplifier has negative feedback so of course 
the negative feedbacks coming from the output into the negative input of the amplifier because that's that's into the inverting that's the definition that into the inverting input of the amplifier so that's the definition of negative feedback right you don't want to go into the non-inverting yes that would be positive feedback yeah um so uh when you put a signal into that inverting input it uh, outputs a signal that is out of phase with that which then if you follow it back through the resistor uh cancels it directly at that node yeah okay so what that creates is a ground because you get a a a perfect in in the voltage domain you get a perfect cancellation of that input signal okay oh so what it means is that that input is incredibly low impedance so you're so you're adding uh positive negative together to cancel and that's your and that's that's how it creates that really low impedance is actually through what's called a virtual ground um and also it's called a summing node that's the other kind of terminology around that you're crazy man um and and so that that is that is a that is using negative feedback Hmm. and so the the input is is looks like a ground it's it's super low impedance and so what that does is it creates what's called an iv stage also known as a trans impedance stage Mm -hmm. um the reason why we call it trans impedance is because uh the way that we calculate gains in amplifiers is we we take the output of the amplifier which is usually v out is the way that we label it mm-hmm. and we divide it by the input signal so usually it's v out divided by v in equals the gain the gain right mhm well, uh, in the case of a trans impedance amplifier, you don't have any voltage on the input. So all you, you, what you have is current flowing into the input now. And so now the amplifier changes to V out divided by I in equals, well, now it's not a uh, unitless gain uh, because... Will it change based on the impedance? Well, it, it it on the source on the source current source, source. the source current it changes. Yeah. But but uh but let's just think about it like this. Okay. Um, usually in a voltage amplifier, you it's a unitless gain because you have V divided by V, so V cancels. So it's just like a gain of ten. Okay. Right. We could say that, or a gain of twenty dB would be the same thing. We don't ever attach like voltage to it, right? And the reason is that V cancels out. It's in the denominator and the numerator. So it just cancels. Gotcha. So, but with a trans impedance amplifier, what's interesting is that it's, it's a V out divided by I in equals and to the Ohm's law, which is V equals IR. It's going to be equals R. Okay. So it's a it's an impedance gain. So I is impedance, right? No, no, no. R is R is impedance. R is impedance. Okay. Yeah, I is current. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. so gotcha. so uh voltage divided by current gotcha. equals R, which is which is an impedance. Right? So so it's actually it has an impedance gain yeah. to the system. Yeah. 
So, so it's, uh, you know, these are expressed in, in kilo ohms, for instance, the gain of these amplifiers, <laughs> you know, for interesting, instance, you know, so, yeah. so cool. and anyways, that's the idea around the standard trans impedance amplifier. And you can kind of see how, um, how I talked about the virtual ground. It's kind of all based around negative feedback. Yeah, negative feedback kind of defines the, the operational yeah. aspect to that amplifier. So taking away, taking away the feedback changes the game because now what you have to do, and this is going to sound crazy. <laughs> it's going to sound crazy. Go for it. But what you have to do is you have to run the cartridge directly into the output of an amplifier. And I'm not, I'm not snaking you guys. What? Yeah. I'm running a cartridge into the output of an amplifier. Hmm. That's okay. right. All right. That amplifier modulates due to the current that that, that, uh, that cartridge is outputting. Hmm. And, I have a current mirror that is attached to that output stage that rides on the output stage. And that current mirror mirrors voltage over that's uh, related to how that current is modulating on the output stage. And that's how <laughs> the input of this new phono stage works. Okay. So anybody out there that's a but, little bit lost like me, that's really cool. We're going to have to yeah. do some Googling. <laughs> I had a um, thought. I had yeah, a thought. Yeah. You were talking about in the first part about doing things the right way and how there is an easy there's kind of like a flick the switch. I I can do this feedback. I don't have to worry about the linearity of my open loop gain because I, yeah. I, I know I can squash it. Mm -hmm. Strikes me as a great parallel to um recording and the use of compression. Mm. And how um uh, compression's not a not a dirty word it's not a it's not a, a terrible uh thing to do it's just most of the time the way it's used is is people are a little haphazard about their recording uh techniques and uh it's a great panacea it's a way to kind of smooth everything out to fix things to congeal things whereas all of this can always be done by doing things the hard way which is uh, perfectly miking everything, ma managing distances. One of the hardest things as a recording engineer is managing the distance from a microphone to an instrument because the instrument player plays with feeling, so their body moves. And so, and so there's, there's all these kind of like things that happen. Or like I mentioned before, you get in the sound check, the band gives you some, one thing, and then when they go, they've got more energy and they give you more. And so in post, you've got to squash it down because your levels went off. Instead of just stopping the recording session, resetting your your levels, and, and, and then going, and, and trying to manage the band's psychology during that because when they get hit like that and stopped then they back off and they'll give you the same level you got in the original sound check. And then you've mm. got to get their feeling back to that one spot when they felt free. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's hard to, to make a recording where you don't need compression almost anywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah, but most mm -hmm. people don't even look at it like that. So it just kind of struck mm. me as an interesting mm. parallel. And it was something we were talking about with direct disc last week where, you know, it's doing it the hard way. And, mm -hmm. uh, Anyway, yeah, and uh, you know it's a difficult topic because you know people get really 
they do get like engineers get really defensive about it, you know, because negative feedback is it is very useful in, in many aspects. It's a I cool mean, effect. the 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 definition of negative feedback is that it basically makes an amplifier a better amplifier. That's like, the, all, all along, like like in every aspect for that amp that right. my grandpa built in nineteen forty seven or eight or nine. I can't yeah. remember when, but the Williamson amplifier was was built around the idea that you make these great transformers that allow for big uh, gobs of feed. Well, not gobs, but enough feedback to actually get some bandwidth. Yeah. That was before not really enjoyed by any amps. So the, the, the tricky thing is, is that, um, is that the, the, the next thing that can help you out besides global feedback is localized feedback. Localized. Yeah. And there's, there's localized feedback is way different than global. They're, they're yeah. not similar. Like people will say, well, it's still negative feedback. And it's like, mm, it is, but it's completely different in the way that it measures. Um, and the way that it, the, the performance in general is completely different. Well, uh, so you, you can't, it's apples sections. and oranges. You yeah, can't, it's apples and oranges. Yeah, you, you can't compare the two. But it, w- this is the thing. This is the thing that'll get you in a in a line preamp. You can use a ton of localized feedback, mm. uh, and the reason is is just because of the gain structure where the line preamp sits. It's relatively, you know, far along the path, and there's not a whole lot of gain after gain. it. Right, yeah. twenty six to to thirty one dB ish after that. Mm. So not a whole lot. Um, with a phono preamp on the input of a phono preamp, <laughs> you have uh, upwards of 90 dB at 20 hertz. In front of it. In, in, in gain, right? Was so, that just on the phono pre? Yeah. Yeah, it's just on the phono preamp. Right. Yeah. So that, that's at 20 hertz. Curve. Right, yeah. yeah. If you're doing like 72 dB at 1 kilohertz, like for, you know, a 0.15 millivolt cartridge or something like that, uh, you know, at 20 hertz, you're going to have roughly, almost roughly... 20 dB more than that. And then after the phono stage, um, we're going to have almost 40 dB of gain with the preamp plus amp. I mean, if you have... Yeah, and then the preamp both. does attenuate a little bit. But still, mm. the, the, you know, the phono stage, at the, 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 the input of the phono stage has a lot of gain after it. So the, here's the problem with localized feedback. The, the, the engineering term for localized feedback is... Um, degeneration mm. and degeneration uh, adds a lot of noise mm. it will ruin the noise performance of an amplifier and uh, on a phono pre- um, and on a phono preamp you cannot afford that you don't want noise so what's interesting is that a lot of my stages in this in the uh, in this new phono preamp they don't have global and they don't have local that's that's crazy wow so it's it's literally i'm talking about like down to the device linearity is is wow. where i'm i'm actually you know executing and, and getting the performance that i'm getting that's cool uh i'm doing that and then also the way that i'm shifting around gains uh, I'm using it's it's fully passive. The of course <laughs> it has to be passive EQ on the mm, right. RIAA. Right. Um, it cannot be you know feedback. It cannot be used in an active or feedback method because there is no feedback. Yeah. 
Um, so it is all passive, but it's split. I'm, I'm, I'm splitting up the poles instead of just doing it all at once, which is the traditional passive way. The, the poles are all split up in different areas Throughout the thing. to, to maximize and to have them in the correct areas as far as the gain distribution. A pole is like what an axis point on a chart of a curve on a, yeah, like a, I mean, for instance, a pole is a, a single point. In which it determines, like, for instance, like the 3 dB down point, right? right? Like the, mm-hmm. the cutoff mm-hmm. frequency would mm-hmm. be, you know, we would be able to say that there's a pole at, you know, 32 hertz because it's, you know, down this, this much. Um, and then you have a zero, which is actually an area in which the, you have a resistor and you have a capacitor and they're in series. And at some point, the impedance of the capacitor becomes real um, and stops being reactive at some frequency. And so that combined with the resistor, you have this uh, shelving effect where it just becomes resistive and so it flattens, right? So it's just an attenuation, but it's flat versus Mm -hmm. a certain frequency until it stops being. And so that's why a a zero is known as like kind of a shelving filter. You know, it's it's a shelf. Huh, yep. Um, and so the RIAA has two poles and it has one zero and the, the one zero is in the center. Right. And so that's why you see it kind of, it comes down and then it kind of like shelves out and then it goes back down and the shelf in the middle is the zero. Gotcha. So, man, that's cool. Thank you. Anyways, that's, what's been going on with me. I've been like really (laughs) entrenched in it. Uh, and I attach, you know, I attach, I'm like. I live and breathe it when I'm in it, you That's know, so cool, and, dude. and I'm, um, I'm excited about this. Not only am I excited about this product, I'm excited about what's going to be coming after that too. Me too. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff coming up stuff here. Stuff in the I'm, pipe. Yeah. Mr. Darren's so. been busy. No question about that. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that window into your world. Um, as you can see, Darren's, uh, Darren's, uh, he's, he's at the high level. He's in it, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for staying awake. Yeah. Thanks for staying (laughs) awake for anyone. Um, let's get into some questions and by some, I mean a whole bunch. We want to, uh, we received a bunch of, uh, emails over the last several weeks and we appreciate everyone's patience, um, for us getting to it. Um, as, clearly uh explained uh darren's a pretty busy guy um i'm a pretty busy guy and so we don't always get the chance we try to uh when we can to respond but we don't always get the chance to respond but just i wanted everyone to know we always read every single email in full and uh and and there Mm -hmm. are some there's some emails we get that we think are so cool that just kind of take this take a journey and go into interesting pathways and say what if this what if that or you know um we have a a guy in denver uh named dave that uh emails us with uh you know um philosophical kind of takes on the things that we're looking at it's just so appreciated um we don't always uh aren't always able to read everything or answer every question and i guess especially more as we're getting more but what you know, if we get a lot of emails that, that we really, um, 
can and are, are eager to answer every now and then we'll do a, a podcast like this. We actually had a podcast maybe a year ago called questions, 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 or something like that. Um, tackled a bunch. So here we are again, we're going to do this. It's a lot of fun. We're both really stoked about not only a, uh, a, a little bit different kind of format, but, uh, but the ability to, uh, to address a whole bunch of, uh, folks with, with questions and comments and stuff. Always appreciate the album recommendations as well. I've gotten a lot of great, great ones lately. And, uh, and so we've been listening a lot to those and, and just enjoying it. So, uh, today we're going to answer seven questions looks like, and, um, got a list here and we're just going to start with one that, uh, that comes from a, a longtime listener who took uh, inspiration from Darren's subwoofer builds. And we've uh, discussed Darren's subwoofer builds in this segment of the, or in the previous segment of the podcast, the What's Up With Me, um, you know, a while ago. Um, he's got um, mini DSP corrected, uh, sealed 18 inch uh, eminence tour grade uh neodymium uh you know 18 inch monsters and you now you've built four of them you've got two in each room two in each system yeah they're they're badass (laughs) i remember when we had a podcast where you were like i'm thinking about adding a third and a fourth yeah yeah. just like you're a madman um but you're not because it's so good and uh you know it led me to to be working on my own diy project but this listener named uh, Michael Murashiga uh, actually like really took took the uh, took the inspiration and went after it, and so he awesome. uh, is doing very much the same thing. And we hadn't heard from him for a while. Uh, one of the things he was concerned about was the ability to get enough gain. And uh, in previous episodes, we've um, uh, suggested to him that uh, you want to have an amplifier with as much gain as possible. Um, you want to, in your mini DSP, be using the four volt RMS input, um, you know, a few different things. Uh, but, uh, Michael, uh, wrote us back this week and is given us an update and it includes, uh, uh, insight on a new product from mini DSP that, that kind of is very exciting. Like it really kind of has us both a little bit interested because, um, last week I think you lamented the, the discontinuation of their balanced version of their, you know, right. uh, analog input, um, uh, device. And so Michael's got some news for us. I'm going to just start, uh, at the top here and read this email from Michael <laughs> Duncan and Darren. It's been a minute since I last emailed and I wanted to email you, but just haven't had the time recently. As always, I'm enjoying the podcast and look forward to Wednesdays when I can get my next audio file fix. I was especially glad to hear you plug Rejoice. I'd written you about it a while ago, and I uh, figured it was something you'd both like. This was uh, Tony album, uh, Allen. Uh, yeah. yeah. Such a good album. Oh, it's so um, good. A recent recommendation. Uh, two things. Our, our email address for any of your questions, if you've got one, uh, or an audio tip, or or anything you want to say to us, uh, hi-fi at outlook.com. And then second, our, our website is uh, net. One of the best pages on there is called the Albums page, where it's just a long list of all the albums of the week that we've recommended. But 
it's full of chock full of good stuff. In fact, I was going through it today and just like, oh, I haven't listened to that in forever. Oh, that's a good album. Oh, I forgot about that one. Oh, I got to listen to that one again. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's great to have them, have them out there. We're going to always be adding to it. So, um, <clears throat> so continue here. I'm writing for a few reasons. I'll just jump in. First, after hearing the last podcast about the new subwoofer that Duncan is building, I thought I'd share some info on, on a new mini DSP product. The Mini DSP Flex, which is due out in mid-January. Did you say it was something around 500 bucks? Uh, with the balanced, for, uh, balanced option. Balanced yeah. option would be yeah, 500 yeah, bucks. Yeah, yeah. Not only can you order it in an analog balanced format, awesome, but it adds SPDIF and Bluetooth connection, the option of digital outs. It integrates networking functions, so you don't need to connect via Ethernet or USB to a computer, and you can use the Mini DSP app to configure and adjust on the fly. But more important for me, it adds the possibility of 12 dB of gain rather than Unity gain previously in the in the previous products to your input. Given your needs, that might be something that works for you and doesn't require you to go single-ended into or out of the Mini DSP. So... Um, as we mentioned the outset, I, I still haven't even fully connected mine. So I, I might get to this point where I'm like, oh, I, I need more gain. I don't know. I've got a 1,200-watt amp connected to it, so we'll see. Yeah, I, um, I do want to raise a bit of caution with the gain for, the, for this application. And okay. the only reason is that, um, you know, in order to pull this, uh, this project off, you need to essentially figure out the bi-quads to inverse the response of the woofer in the cabinet, you know, in order to make the woofer flat uh, to yeah, some degree. So, so you see the roll off and you inverse that with in, yeah. in, in the EQ. You to some degree, you know, like right. for your, for instance, your sub, we may choose to go flat to like 30 Hertz. Right. Cause if you go to 20, you're just going to be like bottoming it out. Right. What's your, what's you your know? goal for ultimate extension, right? Based on everything, not, yeah. Not just... Based on uh, SPL output, yeah. Too. So, like, if we go to thirty with you, you'll be able to get like great output still, and it'll be clean no matter what, and you know it'll sound really awesome. I don't listen to a lot of organs, so um, I think that's probably what we're gonna do. Yeah, and out of a single ten, I mean, you're not gonna get what a pair of eighteens do. I mean, that's right, just you know right. physics, right? There. We were just listening to organ yeah. in your room, and it was so good. Um, yeah, but but the you know what I worry about is the fact that when you're boosting, when you have that boost in Mini DSP, and you have twelve dB gain in Mini DSP, I worry about headroom in, inside of the the dsp there because you may be boosting you know i i think i boost like 12 to 15 db at 20 hertz for right instance. just to and get then you flat. have 12 db on top of that and it's just it, you won't have that headroom inside of the dsp so i just you know uh you know want to put it out there that that might be a, a limitation i don't know exactly how they're doing it uh, but it might be a limitation with the DSP because if you have that gain, for instance, before the DSP section, which is probably the case, um, then that DSP section gets hit with the amplitude, right? Hit with lots. So what you really want is you want to place enough gain after the DSP. That way the, the, the input sensitivity is relatively, uh, you know, it's very sensitive, the input. Well, and I was so, wondering about the input of the amp 
Can you clip it because you're putting so much gain into the? Not the yeah, because it's all it's all relative, right? I mean, as far as you know, you're you're getting a certain amount of output power. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can only, you know, uh, for instance, you can only output as much power as you have, and you can only you can only uh, have as much excursion as you have with the woofer. Yeah. So but... those are like limitations that are fixed. Okay. But with the gain distribution, like for instance, if you were to place gain after the mini DSP, the mini DSP is not swinging as much right. and you don't hit the rails. That's stressed out. But then you place the gain in the amplifier and now you have what you want. Gotcha. So I just want to, you know, put that out there as a limitation possibly. The 12 dB sounds great, but with the biquads in there, that it could really clip the dsp very quickly it sounds like i mean that to me sounds like something that's going to come up in the r&d for mini dsp not necessarily because they're used to applying it full bandwidth Hmm. so they're they're thinking about it as in like let's say you have a good point um, let's say you have a standard sub that's ported that you're not applying any sort of correction to you're just applying a, a flat frequency, you know, a flat response transfer function to. Across the band of the subwoofer yeah. range, but larger area, yeah. Now you could apply some gain mm. and you won't clip it. But because of our bi-quads, you, you will at low frequency. Yeah, because we're just, it's just it's going just so much It's so that. much gain yeah. at low frequency. So that's that's the problem. And I, you know, I mean, the, the fix is that you need some gain after the DSP. Um, but I just want to put that out there, um, just so that people don't start snatching those up just for that option. That could be a big limiting factor in actually using that 12 dB that's available. It doesn't mean that the unit's bad. The unit look sounds amazing. I want one. Um, but, (laughs) but the 12 dB may not actually fix some of our problems. Okay. Um, so he goes into a little more detail about his experience and how and why he's looking at the flex because uh, because ultimately he's he's still not getting the the gain he needs. Yep. Everything is built and set up. He's currently running the old balanced mini DSP, but he'll be upgrading the mini DSP flex when it comes out. I'm loving what I hear. The problem though is that I'm just not hearing enough. I don't think I'm a base hog. But I'm just not getting enough SPL from the new subs. I went back and forth with the mini DSP people and finally got the input jumper set correctly to 4 volt RMS, but it's still not enough. I should say that with my old subwoofer, which was a discontinued but really excellent ACI Maestro XL, when I was setting up the sub, I would crank the volume setting on the outboard amp to three three quarters of max, which filled the room with boom, and then I'd work my way backward until the boominess disappeared and all my setup tracks worked seamlessly with the main speakers. With the new setup, there is no volume knob to increase. In theory, I should be getting full output and then just be using the mini DSP to attenuate the signal. But there's still just not as much bass as there should be. So I tried running the preamp directly to the sub-amp, which is a Hypex-based amp uh, that was made by VTV that does 1,200 watts and 8 ohms and has 32 dB of gain. So within the specs that Darren said uh, should work. Yeah. And still not that much bass. To my way of thinking, this should have been really booming since zero attenuation, but no such luck. So Which, um, which mini DSP? 
Uh, right now, he's it says uh, an, an old analog balanced, so it must be the two by four balance. It is two by four balance. Huh. So I try. Um, let's see. To my way of thinking, this should have been enough boom, zero uh, attenuation, but no such luck. So I'm stuck wondering how to get more bass out of the system, and I know something's not right. I plan to contact VTV to see if they have any ideas, but that's just one of the reasons I'm excited about the new mini DSP unit. It can add up to 12 dB of gain, which hopefully will give me more of the bass that I went looking for when I started this project. And oh. Michael, please let us know if you do get the uh, the flex and you go down that road. What's what's on your mind? Uh, that he's possibly missing the biquats. That's why you're not getting bass. Hmm. Is that you don't have the biquats in there. So, so um, if you used the same cabinet and the same woofer, which it sounds like you did, uh, and it's okay that you went to the Hypex. Um, I can send you the biquads. Okay, we'll get in touch with Michael. So, so I'll send you. I'll send you the biquads for this. I I think that you might be missing the biquads, which means that you're fighting the roll off in the cabinet. So you're you're losing like a ton of you know you're losing up to like twelve to fifteen dB right there. Possible. Okay. Yeah. We'll explore that. We're going to send you those um, that were generated from our friend uh, Chris Brunhaver and, and Darren using a, a measurement system uh, going into their... Yep. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is just going to be under your uh, parametric EQ. You're going to have to put in, you know, under the advanced section, you have the ability to put in custom bi-quad filters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is where file. you're going to basically just like copy and paste the data in there. Mm-hmm per channel see how that and works and then you'll then the biquads get uh applied to that we'll see if we can uh, yeah we'll see but, if we can if, if that does anything um yep. but that's so cool michael and then and then of course uh keep us posted on on everything going on here his uh second question actually is about my cable my uh uh michael was uh first guy actually to buy one of my power cables uh which uh became the the model whisper and um and michael's just uh been enjoying it let's say he says third reason i'm writing is i wanted to say i'm loving the power cord which has raised the sound of the entire system for the first time since i got into the audio game the kind of scale i'm after is finally within reach um i'm not sure but i'm presuming that my power cord which was made earlier is some version of the whisper yes it is the whisper uh, brings me to my next question. Given that your cables are ever evolving, moving target, is there any possibility of upgraded newer version? I read that on the podcast, Michael, just so I could let you know. Absolutely. Um, so I'll get in touch with you and we'll talk about um, the upgrade, which is um, which is two changes. And I was thinking about it outside, and I think I think that should be easy to uh, to pull off. So we'll get in touch. Um, so anyway. Uh, Thanks, Michael. That sounds like a killer, killer um, project. I mean, it, it it has been, and it's very cool to hear the update. Um, I was kind of curious how things were getting along with that cable, too. So thanks so much for the, the feedback there. And uh, and we'll get in touch with uh, these bi-quad filters and see if we can get you where you need to be. All right, our next email comes from Wen Liu. And uh, I think he's written us before, but uh, this is a new question, and I think we have an idea of how to help. 
Uh, the subject line is loud pop slash static noise. Hello, gents. I hope this note finds you well. Thank you very much for your episode on preamps. Very enjoyable and informative. I had the exact experience when I switched from the digital preamp built into my Cambridge Audio 851N streamer to using a dedicated preamp, which is an Audio Research Ref 3. Cool. I was absolutely astonished by the sonic difference. Hopefully your episode will enable others to have the same experience. As for my system, I've recently experienced a sudden loud popping noise. These occur very randomly in the middle of my listening sessions. It doesn't occur every time I play music, and there is no rhythm as to when. It has occurred when I first started playing music, as well as hours into a session. Uh, System simple is the 851N streamer from Cambridge Audio, Audio Research Ref 3, Parasound 821 Plus Power Amp, and Kef Reference 1 stand mount speakers. I love Kef Reference 1 speakers. Have you ever seen those? I have. This is so pretty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, and then of course, classic, um, concentric, just awesome design with the, mm-hmm. with the woofer. Uh, what do you think of the most likely suspects that might be causing the issue I've noted above? The preamp is the first tube component I've owned, so that could it be the case of bad tubes? How would you suggest for me to troubleshoot this issue? Thanks so much in advance. Wen from Michigan. It's the tubes. Is that the easy one? I don't know. Yeah. I, um, it's immediately what struck yeah, us. I mean, Plus, the, the first number one culprit is that um, it could be either the t- the signal tubes or the rectifier tubes. Because that, mm, that okay. Ref 3, I believe, has a 6550. Mm-hmm. It could okay. be wrong. Um, 6550 for the past device, and then it has a, um, a tube for the... Uh, the error amplifier. Yep, it's got a sixty-five fifty. And then, um, what does it have for the? Uh, Looks like two tubes. After yeah. That, so, um, has the uh, the super six H thirty P's or something yeah, like that. Yeah, six H thirty. Yeah. In my um, experience, and plus, you, you mentioned the popping noise in the body of the email, but in the subject line, you said loud pop slash static noise. I mean, those to me scream yeah, input tubes. Yeah, and but you're right. It could be the the rectifier as well. Yeah, um, all the tubes are, you know, possible car- culprits. Yeah, didn't mention if it was used when you got it, um, but it sounds to us like I mean, just having lots of experience when when I've got tubes in the mix and I've got something like that going on. My first yep. thought goes to those tubes. I I work at the music room and we 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 what do we sell a thousand used pieces of gear per month? I mean it's we we have so much experience with tube amps and i got to say 90 what 8% of all problems that we've ever had with any tube gear just comes from old tubes and it's just part right. of the deal yeah. um part of the deal and so if you if you did buy that used uh that is something that you want to yeah jump i on. the only other thing i can think of that produces like just random pops um would be you know if you're listening to a record and uh you know a, some sort of static discharge happens okay you know where you get some sort of um moment in which there's a, st- a static discharge between the tone arm and the record uh, but i don't think that's what's happening he's here. not mentioning a, yeah. an analog rig right i've also uh i experience um faint like like not pop but it's like a tick or something sound uh because i let rune 
upsample to DST, upsample everything to DST. And I've heard some people, oh right, right, you know, yeah. using different different streaming services like JRever or something like that. When you switch from a DSD file to PCM yeah. file, sometimes you get a, a yeah. pop or something. But it's pretty minor though, too. But that. that's when you no, start it's... a track, and that's yeah. based on an input from you. So it's like mm-hmm. he would have noticed. It sounds like his is more no rhyme or reason than. Yeah, and the thing about the audio research preamps too is that the um, and we'll actually get a little bit more into this bit later but uh the attenuator is actually before all the gain and just like we we talked about in Mm. the previous episode where usually you want to attenuate first and then you apply you know a signal path that has usually a gain of uh, 12 db you know Mm -hmm. four four x um and the problem is that if you have some sort of pop that happens in the input stage you know, there's roughly 4x gain like on that. Yeah. Hmm. You know, so it's four times louder, you know, on the output as it is on the input. Gotcha. So, uh, so you know, yeah, easily it could be the tubes here. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, popcorn noises. Yeah. Know, static and pop. Static noise, constant noise, um, rushing sound mm-hmm. these are all kind of like bad tube sound tube problems yeah like yeah. two sounds that are created by uh by tubes that have uh seen better days yeah, yeah. So, all right when uh that's awesome your experiences with a new preamp uh yeah it's a good fun yeah. it's a great preamp yeah get some new tubes and and let us know how that goes <coughs> our uh careful there our next email comes to us <laughs> From uh, a writer named, uh, or a listener named uh, Jesus Constantino. Jesus uh, wrote us a recent email that we really wanted to talk about too, just don't have time today, um, that's really out there. And I just had to mention it. Thanks, Jesus, for your earlier email. Jesus went to the eye doctor and was talking about the differences between dominant eye and non-dominant eye and the novel ways that uh, eye doctors use contact lenses to kind of fool the brain into using one eye for close-up and one eye for far field, but you don't know that. You kind of like, um, you, you know, your your brain mixes the two. And he was curious, well, what if, is there a dominant ear and a non-dominant ear? And what if asymmetrical speaker placement has has something to do with that. And of course you and I looked at each other. We were like, no asymmetrical speaker placement and toe in has more to do with room uh, treatment. And, re- and really, if you put headphones on and, and you hear a balanced sound, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of reinforcement of that, but just really cool thoughts. I had to also mention the last part of his earlier email where he was asking about two sets of speakers. I think I mentioned that I do that, or I used to do that at my desktop. I can't now cause I don't have a physical desk literally wide enough for me to put my main main desktop speakers and then my my what I would call satellite speakers, which are my my deckware tiny radial omnidirectional speakers, padded, i.e. with a resistor down so to the right level where they're just sort of like ambient and add to this like expansive soundstage. I, I used to say that my when I had this set up with four speakers, my <clears throat> my soundstage was like an IMAX where it did wasn't circular where where like you you it, it, where it kind of disappeared along the edges it was this straight vision you know left right to to a, just a, a large wide 
uh, panoramic view. And I very much enjoyed that. I also uh, mentioned to Darren that Siegfried Lequins used to have a, a DIY setup where you'd have the main speakers and then you have these uh, these satellite speakers to the sides. Uh, you know, and, and what I found at work was that it, when I set this up on my desktop was so it's so important to get the distance right for that second pair of speakers because it all falls apart if it's not the right distance. But once mm-hmm. it snaps, it snaps. But it's only good for like a really locked head position because, I mean, seriously, you get some major interactions that happen when you get outside of it. I would have co- uh, coworkers come up and say, wow, that sounds really good. And I'm like, you have no idea. Because your head is not exactly where my head is. Here, mm-hmm. come over and listen to this. Yeah, yeah. And it would be some guy that's six foot tall. And I'm like, actually, you're going to need to bend down because I am <laughs> I am shorter than that. And uh, it's really optimized for that. So, okay, let's get into Jesus' uh, current question, which is, uh, which is a bit more straightforward. Uh, I've used integrated amps for the entirety of my music listening life, but I'm interested in transitioning to a preamp power amp set separates in my current humble setup. I use an audio refinement, complete integrated amp, which is a budget gem from the late nineties, powering a pair of Martin Logan, uh, motion 35 XTI bookshelves. I like those actually. Um, I've written about those before at the music room. Really like them on stands. Of course, the rest of the system includes a Martin Logan sub subwoofer dynamo sub. Denifrips Aries 2 DAC, a refurbished and heavily modified Thorns TD-165 turntable. I like those too. Uh, lounge audio LCR Mark II front of stage and a, a Raspberry Pi-based streamer. I'm interested in switching from the solo integrated to a pre-plus power amp duo as a way to add more flexibility to the system and also as a way to introduce tubes to a system. Here we go. Is it possible to shift gradually from an integrated amp to separates? In other words, can I use a preamp with an integrated amp? As with most things in audio, I've read many conflicting opinions on the subject, and I've read many conflicting methods for doing so. No, the audio refinement uh, does not have a pre-out or a main in, and as far as I can tell, all the inputs on the integrated are just standard line level ins with two tape outs. Um... This amp has been tough to find information on, but I have been able to piece together that it apparently has a passive preamp stage. I'm not totally sure what this means in context of an integrated amp. I'm guessing it means that the preamp section on this thing is pretty much just the input routing and volume control. The amp is unbelievably simple and elegant inside, so I can I can believe it. If the audio refinement does indeed have a passive preamp stage, could this trait make it possible to simply treat the integrated like a power amp? I'm sure there's more complexity to this than I recognize. Anyhow, just curious if this seems doable or wise. And Jesus writes us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like nothing is ever going to be hurt by by going for it. Um, I mo- I recently talked about uh, I one of the products I'm listening to is an integrated amp. I have a DAC that is um has a preamplifier sort of built into its structure has a little bit of gain um not a ton but um now i'm stri- you know i've now got two volume controls what do i do do i run the integrated amp all the way up and then and then work on the dac do i run the dac all the way up dac pre run the pre all the way up and then work on the integrated amp as the volume control and i did both 
there's slightly different character to both. I knew that at the top end of the the amps volume control, I'm kind of like, I don't know, at top end of most uh, some amps, uh, you know, you get different distortion characteristics, but you know, maybe that's part of it. Maybe I was listening to elements of of the the volume controls themselves. I've mentioned this before in pro audio. There's something called gain writing, where you have gain structures in different areas, and you and you listen and you find that different combinations of different gain give you different perspectives. Hmm. Now, this is totally separate from the fact that if his amp actually is a passive preamp stage, then that's perfect license to just open that baby wide open, use the preamp. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. Okay. You're right. Yeah, it's 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 the perfect integrated for just running a preamp with it. So yeah. what you want to do is you want to open it uh, all the way up. If it's, if it's truly passive and it's not active, um, open that volume control all the way up. And then you want to run the um, preamp into the input of that integrated amp. And then you can control the, the uh, volume via that active preamp. Yeah. Uh, the 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 pa- if it's truly a passive stage, it's just essentially either a potentiometer or a a stepped attenuator in the signal path. So it's just resistors in the signal path, and by opening it, you know, all the way up, you are um, not going to be attenuating much at all, and uh, y- you know, it's now closer to just a standalone amplifier. Then. Then you've got your separates, yeah. actually. Yeah. That's your separates so, right there. <clears throat> um, so, you know, I think that's the answer to this is that, yeah, yeah, you, you can do this and you should do this. Um, you know, especially the fact that it has a passive preamp, you know, that they're good, but they're not like a nice active. It's going to um, knock you out when you put the yeah, active on there. The active brings a lot more, uh, you know, meat on the bone sound so i you should try it yeah and even if it's active and it's not passive it's like you're not gonna hurt anything um you just gotta listen to it and see if you like it right yeah but but the idea is if if there is gain afterwards there's usually noise involved with gain too yeah maybe like try to figure out where the unity gain might be on Mm -hmm. that where it's not adding gain it's not subtracting and then again then it's a kind of a, a power amp at that point yep there's so, some cool there's some cool integrateds out there that have passive preamps though. Hmm. Like um my favorite is the uh Conrad Johnson Cav forty five. I knew you were gonna say Conrad Johnson. Because it sounds like something interesting. The Cav forty five is is a very good amp. Yeah, I can't remember if I ever I don't think I've ever hmm. listened to one of those. They made so many products. Yeah. Over the years. That's a good one. That's a good one. Cav forty five in it. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for writing. Hey, Zeus. Best of luck. Sounds fun. Um, yeah. You're just having a ball. So, yep. thanks for that other email, too. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Our next uh, question comes from. What is his full name here? Uh, per Anderson from Umea, Sweden. Hope I pronounced that correctly. Probably didn't. But thank you so much for writing, um, Per. Question is. 
Hi, and thanks for the fantastic podcast. Very inspiring. I've got one question. What is your thought on outriggers for speakers? I'm considering getting myself a treat and getting myself a couple of those. It, I think they look good, but do they improve sound quality? Any list of system, I'll go through it quick because it's got a pair of speakers I like. Devulet 220 Pro Amp. Uh, that's cool. Rega RP6 with a clear audio essence MC pickup. Cool. Air Evolution CD player. I like those. Air. Hmm. Uh, oh, Air. Yeah. I was. I don't know why I, was, I read that as Aeon, but I love the Aeon CD players. Of course, I like Air stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Air's based in Boulder. They make good stuff. Boulder area. Peak Consult, the Zoltan speakers. Peak Consult is an interesting speaker maker. Uh, I can't remember the exact model that I listened to uh, that I was really stoked about. What an I, interesting name. Right? Peak Consult. Peak <laughs> Consult. Why would you name your speaker company that? I mean, hey, I I'm, I'm casting no judgments over well, here. Well, sure. Yeah. I'm just saying it's, it's an interesting, interesting name. That's yeah. all I'll say. They make, they make good speakers. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cool. I can't remember the, the model that I listened to, but I was really, really impressed. And then I did some digging and other people are impressed, not just me. Usually that's the case. I, I listen to something I'm like, wow. And then I go look it up and it's like everybody else is like, wow. You know, uh, but he's got purest audio speaker cables for a tech uh, power cables. He's got a living room system with your amp, Sprout 100, uh, one of your little projects long ago, a uh, little integrated. And then uh, Thorin's table and uh, some Wharfdale speakers. All right, so we do uh, have a take on outriggers. Both of us have mentioned that you know it's just a it's an upgrade that we'd both love to have. I think you more than me because you've got these Dunlavy SC four A speakers with probably the largest flat room floor coupling bases ever created on a speaker. <laughs> oh no. Except for Duntex Sovereigns. Those are bigger. <laughs> no, but actually... They're hardwood, though. In yeah, ratio-wise, and in terms of the amount of, like, lip that comes off the edge, like, no, the Dunlavy is actually bigger. In terms of footprint versus the, yeah. the size of the speaker. So there's more influence of flex. There's yeah. more There's more going on. And it depends on your uh, floor as well. So if you have a, you know, a, a concrete slab, it's not going to be that important. If you have... You know, a solid, you know, old construction home that's really rigid, uh, it's still going to matter, but not as much as if you have a new construction floor that, you know, really moves, uh, like my main room. We call it, you know, the trampoline the room. Trampoline. It's uh, very trampoline-y. Uh, <laughs> so where would you guess Peak Consult is from? I don't know. Denmark. Okay. Why are there so many speakers? Denmark yeah. has so much audio. Does? We should move to Denmark. <laughs> I think we should. I just noticed the other day Ice Powers from Denmark. I don't know why You're I didn't know You're queuing up some emails that we're going to get for next week. <laughs> we're going to get some emails. Um, but, but, so, you know, so, uh, your, your footer alone matters a lot on you know, any sort of floor that moves. Um, mm-hmm. And if you have, you know, depending on the base that you have, like the worst that I've seen, yeah, is 
you know, are the, the, the Dunn lobbies. They have horrible, horrible bases. Um, so outriggers, adding outriggers to those speakers. Yeah. Like it's a massive improvement. Um, over other speakers. Yeah. They may not have, uh, a great solution to couple to the floor or decouple in this case. Um, so yeah, 150 pounds of speaker and it's just straight on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have a speaker like this, that's literally just sitting on the floor, outriggers are going to make a massive improvement. Mm-hmm. And then you can get into outriggers and start messing around with sorbethane mm-hmm. versus spikes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So both of these solutions, sorbethane or a spike, they're both excellent solutions. It just depends on your room. It depends on your floor, depends on your preferences, but, uh, An the example. spike technically can be better than the sorbethane and the sorbethane technically can be better than the spike. It just depends on the situation. But if your speakers literally has, you know, it has a high amount of surface area contacting your floor, that is not a good situation and outriggers will make a massive difference. Yeah, I've heard, um, so a good example of a sorbethane approach would be the isoacoustics Gaia feet. Um, yep. And I've heard a pair of uh, Focal Soper number threes uh, with Gaia threes on them. And, uh, and just incredible. And you come up and you kind of like touch the speaker and it wobbles a little bit. Mm-hmm. Of course, the outrigger too will help with stability. If you've got any kids mm-hmm. around, you've got a tall speaker. This is uh, upping the safety to a large degree. Um, one set of spike type feet that I, uh, am fond of are the Marigo bear claw feet. Um, but there's other options for that. Um, and as you've probably noticed looking around, uh, there's a lot of speaker designs that have, a outriggers built in cause it's pretty decent science. You know, I'd say one thing is, uh, they need to be strong enough for 150 pounds of speaker. Yes. Y- you you kind of ran into that, didn't you? Now your speakers are what? How how heavy are your speakers? Two hundred each. I th- I think the yeah I think the Dunlavy about yeah the the SC four is about two hundred yeah. pounds. Mine's a hundred. Yours is two hundred. Yeah. I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and you you tried a pair um, that just weren't strong enough. <laughs> <laughs> just flex city, right? Did you not want me to bring this up? I mean, it's kind of it's just tweaking. You're just trying stuff. I thought we were going to bury that forever. You're like, bro, come on, man. What happened to that $20 I gave <laughs> hey, you? Hey, chill out, dude. Come on. I gave him 20 bucks. <laughs> so just well, never, we're still... never say this again. All right. It's, it's not shameful. It's just, In fact, I think it's cool because you actually went for it and you tried it and you're, you're like, okay, we need to readjust. That's the whole of the whole thing. <laughs> dude, Tweak-itis, was, man. It was so one of those situations where like at the very beginning, I was like, there's no way this is working. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work. You kind of keep pushing then, like, forward a little bit. I you're like, oh, was like, no, no, no. And no, then no. like I stand it up and I'm just like, ah, nope. So I want to mention that because I saw the 150 so, per, per thing. They yeah, need to be you know, solid. Yeah, you got to have... The outriggers need to be extremely rigid, you know? Yeah. That's all I can say is I, I thought mine were, they were on the line. You know, I was, I don't know. Mind your weights and it stuff was, like that. Yeah. Yeah. You got to, you want a thick piece of, uh, of metal. Yep. Uh, that's, but anyways, you can buy these online that are already, you know, spec for their weight and, uh, uh, outriggers can make a massive difference. Um, 
and then you have to worry about the coupling to the floor. So you could go spike from that rigger, or you could go sorbethane. Um, yeah, if based you're on, on if you're on carpet, uh, I recommend trying spikes. Spike it. Um, if you're on hardwood, especially hardwood that's a little bit uh, like that moves, you know, it has a low resonance frequency. Yeah, there's I, a... you might want to you might want to try sorbethane um and you might also want to try spike uh uh, if you're on a really 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 rigid surface um such as yeah such as concrete or you're on a rigid old construction home hardwood uh you might want to try uh you know a spiking it or or a sorbethane It, it it's gonna really depend on on the room and how uh the base is interacting but it's it's nice to try both to be honest with you. if you're Amen. if you're on if you're on a carpet surface that uh with a lot of padding the spikes are nice if that's the gets, that's the one yeah. continuous thing i've found is because they'll the, jab right through that right. underlay yeah uh, sorbethane is just useless on a big foam pad 100 percent. it doesn't it doesn't compress no. So sorbethane doesn't start... It doesn't act like sorbethane. It's also going to be easy to tip them over. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just a mess. But no. yeah. um, but there's some great things you can get from sorbethane. Not only you're talking about isolation, but one of the tenets of isoacoustics technology is, is slight resistance in one way and a little more flow in another way, right? And so they're managing one, vertic- one axis of the vibrational uh, actions of this cabinet, which... It's a cabinet with all of the motors facing forward. They're all going pistonically in one direction. So you can imagine that, that, that it would be interesting to absorb in one direction and not in another direction. So there's some real benefits. But yeah, again, if you're on carpet, that's, that's off the table. Yep. Unless you use uh, spike cups by Isoacoustics where they actually have a dish with spikes underneath it. And then you get the... Uh, the sorbethane on top of it. I don't think you've ever seen those. That's a product. Yeah. I've not seen that. Yeah. I haven't even, I've never talked to you about it. And it's just like, huh. when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's an interesting solution. Literally a metal dish with three spikes. And then you got the mm. Gaia foot on top of that. Lots of options for you, but go for it. Treat yourself. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for writing, Per. Our next email comes from Ken Roach. Ken asks a question about our podcast episode 65. I think that was our last one here. Hi, I really enjoyed this episode about preamplifiers. does touch on something I've always wondered about. How do chip-based volume controls compare to stepped attenuators or potentiometers? I'm not talking about digital volume controls used in DACs, but analog chips with digital control used in many preamplifiers available, like the Audio Research Ref 6. Do they switch between resistors similar to a tr- traditional stepped attenuator, except the switching is done with transistors rather than a mechanical multi-position switch? Or do they have some other means to control the volume level? How about the sonic penalties? You would think a mechanical stepped attenuator would sound the best, but it seems that many of the top preamplifiers and integrated amplifiers use these chips. Thanks, Ken Roach. Well, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, the analog... Volume controls uh, that are based off of ICs do use, they use MOSFETs 
uh, to do the switching instead of some sort of mechanical device such as relays or uh, or a switch. So uh, they they operate based off of these uh, uh, you know MOSFET uh, yeah. switches, um, and and they're they're done in a certain way that allows for a wide range of attenuation. And they offer uh, usually what's called uh, zero cross um, protection, um, which means that every time you change the volume control, that they search for a zero crossing to make the change. So, mm-hmm. in like if you, if, for instance, just to make this more simple, if you have like a sine wave, that when you change the volume, that it would only change it in the zero crossing of the sine wave where the voltage is zero is zero. So therefore you don't get a pop. Gotcha. Uh, In these volume controls, you still hear what sounds like a relay click, right? Am I listening? I'm remembering testing some audio research pre's and you go click, 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 uh, going up. Or am I, am I thinking about the, the shit preamplifier? Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I've about. never heard popping from an audio research. No, now that the, I'm thinking these, about uh, it. These volume control ICs, they don't really... Yeah, they don't pop. Okay. Now and I'm be, thinking because about of it. zero crossing. Now, I didn't mean through the speakers. I'm in a relay, and I think that I'm, t- I'm thinking about a totally different setup. So um, so cool. anyways, that's, th- that's the answer to that is that, yeah, these... Yeah, they're awesome. These analog uh, chips do use MOSFETs uh, instead of some sort of mechanical device or electromechanical device like a relay. Uh, are they as good as a, an, a stepped attenuator or some sort of relay ladder situation? Um. The answer to that is no. They're 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 not as good as a stepped attenuator or a ladder uh, volume control using relays. Um, the reason uh, is because the MOSFETs have uh, capacitance, um, capacitive aspects to them um, that that uh, is not in the um steps attenuator so Hmm. so just for for instance if you were to take a like a shunt volume control okay what this means is that we take a certain resistor we take a single value resistor let's just call it i'm going to just pick some random value uh 15k okay okay 15 kilo ohms uh and then what we do is we put a shunt resistance which means uh, from the signal after that resistor to ground, and we vary that. So if that value is 15K, we get 6 dB of attenuation hmm. because it's 15K to 15K. That's like a voltage divider, and whenever they're the same value, it's half. Okay. It halves it. Gotcha. And that's 6 dB down, right? So the problem is with... A lot of active uh, silicon-based volume solutions, including digital potentiometers, is that they have a, a capacitance due, uh, that is uh, induced. And so what that means is now you have 15K uh, with a 
you know, like for instance, a standard value that might be seen in these kind of applications is like 85, uh, picofarads. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and, and so it doesn't sound like much, but when you have, you know, 15 K with 85 puff, uh, you start to get roll off before the circuit even. So it starts to become like a dominant pole on the upper end. Gotcha. Um, if you're up to 50 K it's, it's into the audio band. Mm. Okay. You know, which is not even what I'm looking for. You know, e- e- even if I'm like way down at a hundred K, I'm kind of disappointed. When you're talking about that, uh, are you talking but, about like you're getting quieter cause you're increasing? Uh, no, I'm just talking about the frequency response. Yeah. But I mean the effect. So well, where I'm going with this is that thanks to the Fletcher Munson curves, we know that at lower volumes, <clears throat> it's harder for us to hear the ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And here you are, uh, adding there's capacitance in the system and it's kind of uh the capacitance rolling it off a little bit yeah it's just limiting the bandwidth it's like doing the opposite so you're you're getting phase shift earlier you're getting you know it's just a bandwidth limitation yeah um that's that's one one aspect to it the other the other aspect is that that capacitance is not linear it's not like a good capacitor Mm, right you know we, we talk about this a lot in the sense of on the tube subject you know, a, a big thing about tubes, the reason why, like, you know, this sounds like I'm simplifying, but really through a lot of, you know, years of learning about electronics, you know, one of the big aspects that separate silicon-based devices from uh, hollow-state devices like tubes is that not only do tubes have really low capacitance on the input, but the capacitance that is there. It's an air capacitor. Mm. It's better than a Teflon capacitor. Yeah, right. It's it's extremely linear at a high frequency. Right. Right? Okay. The the silicon-based... Is that like the best defense of tubes i've ever heard i think it <laughs> i think it is I it's mean, one of the awesome. best it's one of the best that i can come up with other than the fact that you know they they relatively you know they they accept really high voltages yeah, yeah. and they can swing a lot of voltages mm-hmm. and their load lines are relatively linear yeah yeah and 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 usually in the sense of a you know in, in the application of a an actual triode they have triode based curves instead of like pento based curves you know but but anyways um you know the capacitance in my opinion is a big thing which is the reason why when it comes to silicon based devices i'm a massive fan of the jfet and the reason why i'm a big fan of the jfet is because jfets can have really low capacitance and i want to minimize the capacitance that's there because the jfet capacitance is also going to be nonlinear, just like mosfet capacitance Mm. So, you know, again, this capacitance is usually going to be MOSFET, you know, or CMOS-based capacitance, and this is not going to be linear, and this is not something that is desirable. Um, It's it's not necessarily that it ruins the sound. It's just that it's not as good as a stepped attenuator that doesn't have much capacitance at all, and the capacitance that is there is literally like air effects. or or effects in the uh, PCB uh, on that SEPT attenuator where, you know, generally you're creating a pretty linear capacitance mm-hmm. there. And, and it's very minimal, you know, just a couple puff, if anything. 
So, uh, so cool. that that's my answer. You know, cool. it's a little bit. I, I'm being a little bit uh, over analytical in this sense. You know, the 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 analog volume controls are really really nice. Yeah. Um, it's just that the answer was or the question was popped. Is it better than a sept attenuator? And the answer to that is just no. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, is it cheaper than a sept attenuator? Yes. Yeah. Okay. By by a good margin. Is it easier to design? Does it have less problems? Yes. Um, does it simplify the the signal path? Possibly. Hmm. The the analog uh, option over the the stepped attenuator. And the only reason for that is that. You may want to buffer the steps attenuator so that you have a constant, steady input impedance. Impedance. Some preamps will do that, so that's why I just. Gotcha. You know, it's a possibility that it will actually gotcha. simplify the signal path. So Interesting. there are many advantages, you know, on both sides. Yeah. And Lots both options can lead to great sound, just like you know, audio research has awesome. Right. They offer awesome preamps, and they're all using these analog active chips. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and you know, you said it earlier, there's a million ways to skin the cat in these kind of design things. Oh, there's yeah. a little window yeah. into the decisions that go into it. Yep. All right. Thanks, Ken, for that question. That was a good one. Uh, our next question comes from David Hildebrand. Dave Hildebrand uh, writes us from time to time. I love um, getting emails from Dave uh Denverite, uh, a local, a, a Colorado guy, um, usually talking uh, in in kind of lengthy emails about philosophy and and connecting with with our perspective. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we read every single email and and ruminate on it. And I've always appreciated uh, your emails, Dave. If if we haven't found yet um, the perfect opportunity to to talk about them. Um, recently, uh, Dave offered an idea for us to, um, to really outline in a, in a serious, uh, paper, our defense of, uh, defense basically against cable measurementalists. Um, cause he appreciates, uh, our take on, on those kind of things, uh, the subjective versus the objective and, and, uh, had some great, uh, received some great ruminations from Dave. Today, Dave asks a question that's um, easier for us to just slam on here, and we're going to do it because it's such a cool question because we're so stoked for what he's doing. Um, so I'll read from the beginning. Hi, guys. I recently bit the bullet and replaced the caps in my amp, which is a pair of Quicksilver Mono 60s. I love those, by the way. Uh, killer little tube amps, uh, tube monoblocks, and my Quicksilver line stage. I also replaced the pot on my line stage. Went from an Alps to a TDK. I put four Mundorf silver gold caps in each mono. So that's eight. That's an investment. I put uh, both two, two V-cap ODAM and four Mundorf M-Lytics in my line stage. The V-cap Oh damn, two uh, caps are so good. They're just uh, they're blowing people's minds out they're there. Called oh damn, yeah, oh damn, yeah, exactly. Oh, oh damn, can't go wrong with that product name. Yeah, I think you need to 
name a product like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a couple photos he sent. Uh, super cool internal. I've heard the caps take a while to break in or get saturated. Question. What time frame might I be looking at for things to settle in? And what are some of the sonic characteristics one listens for as part of this process? How do you run in your amps, etc.? Thanks, Dave in Denver. Yeah. Um, so generally what you can do to run in amplifiers is to, um, and in this case, they're Quicksilver, so they're tube amplifiers. Um, so with tube amplifiers, you really want a load on the output of the amplifier. So you can buy some um, like 20 watt, 25 watt or 50 watt, you know, eight ohm resistors uh, off of like DigiKey or Mauser online. The dummy resistors, right? Exactly. Yeah, just dummy loads, and you can uh, you can connect those to the output of the amplifiers, and you can actually run just run music into them like you usually would, um, like roughly like where you would usually listen to on your preamp. And that means that you're probably, you know, at peaks or you're throwing, you know, 10 Watts, you know, peak into the, into the resistor, you know, but that's just peak. So just really quick moments of that. And the RMS is going to be just a few Watts. So Mm -hmm those 25 to 50 watt resistors would be fine in that application. Um, and that you, you could get hundreds of hours, like, you know, very quickly and in a consistent manner over a period of, 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 you know, a couple of weeks or whatever. Um, and, and so that's, that's one way of doing it. Uh, the other way is just to, if you're, if you have a room that's completely isolated, it's just, I know this is like really intuitive, but it's just like, you just play them, you know, and uh, play them through the speakers uh, all the time. Um, if you're limited to just playing them in the day, just have them on during the day before you go to work, you know, and everybody leaves leaves the house or something and just have it on. Uh, I would say it doesn't necessarily need to be, like, super loud, you know. Just have, have them on playing, you know, maybe below even what you usually listen to in volume and... Hmm. Um, have, have, have signal going through them, you know? So, uh, it is tougher with the tube amps. Cause then you're looking at, well, I've got output tubes that are going to give me two to 3000 good hours if I'm lucky, you know? And so that's a chunk. Right. Uh, right but right. you know, this is part of it because these, you're going to stick with these amps. You're going to get new tubes. Yeah. It's going to be part of that deal i i ran into that i actually decided because my amp was tubed to listen the whole time but also early on in our podcast you and i modified these d115 audio 17 tube audio tube audio research tube amps and yeah so we were fascinated to hear what was going to happen there's two camps of people there's people that don't want to wait right for the modification or for the burn-in and then there's a camp that really loves the process of the break right and hearing it change um so you know if you're in the former camp uh the camp that you know doesn't want to wait then the the load resistors are really the way to get you know to to that very quickly now if you have a solid state amplifier a class d amplifier 
AB amplifier, um, then you can just unplug your speakers and run signal into that. So then turn music on on repeat and turn your preamp up. In that case, because there's no load and there's no speakers connected, you can go a little bit higher on your preamp in volume than you usually would, but would be maybe like, you know, really, really loud. Just don't have your speakers connected. Um, and the voltage swing over all the components will actually uh, cause the amplifier to break in. So that's, if you have a, a solid state amplifier or at least solid state output on the amplifier, uh, that is a really easy, quick way to get hours on your amplifier. Now, cool. But if you have a power amplifier with power tubes, you're going to want to put a load on the output of the transformer. Now, you uh, installed silver gold Mundorfs on your amp. I have uh, the quad of silver gold oils that you gave me on my amp. And so when you're to your next question of what can I expect to hear... Oh, as far as Brennan. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a fun journey. You know, yeah. I encourage you to listen. Take the path of listening yeah. to the, the Mundorf. Yeah. Because the educational purpose alone and what it can bring to you know your listening skills too, like listening to components burn in, it's a very unique process. Uh, there's nothing really quite like it. And it changes so fast you're hyper aware. Yeah. And it's a really good kind of connection to it, I found. Yes. And so here's a messed up thing about Mundorf. <laughs> Duncan knows what I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. They're the only cap I've ever heard in my life that, for some reason, the first like couple hours are like glorious. Mm -hmm. They really are. And then it just dies. Tanks. It tanks <laughs> to like... All-time lows. <laughs> to all-time lows. Like, not, not Atlanta. All-time lows, yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's a very weird, like, roller coaster. The Mundorf train, like, when yeah. you get into Supreme, you know, silver oils and the silver gold oil, it, it's just this up and down... You know, like sometimes you have good sounds. Sometimes it's really dry and thin and crusty and horrible. Sometimes there's no soundstage. It narrows. Yeah. And, th um, and then, and then it like, then it gets better and like just kind of solidifies and like really, uh, settles out and becomes something well, I, great. I found too, that there were but element, there were periods of time where I was like, can I just stop it right here? Because I want this right now. This is Bloom City. This is everything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then I start losing it. And I'm like, is that ever going to come back? You know? Yeah, the it's first couple of hours are really bloomy on them. Like, they have this... It's so it's such an odd break-in, you know, uh, experience. But they, the fact that they have this, like, ultra-bloom, ultra-warmth right away glow almost yeah yeah and, and they and then they tank and then it goes mm -hmm. like it swings opposite it swings directly to like sterile and thin and lose base. really anemic sound mm -hmm. um for a little bit and then you start getting start getting it back and more of that back and more of that back and then you kind of like start to to um you're still a little bit more towards neutral than you started out with but it's, it's weird 
they're they're very warm yeah. right at first yeah it's very warm it's really yeah. fun that's that's kind of like the the supreme experience of mundorf in my opinion is that kind of roller coaster so anyways it'd be interesting to get your opinion on how that plays out for you so i i just think it's a great learning experience and a uh, opportunity to sharpen the chops for listening to to experience that you know um component break-in so yep so try try that yeah but that's just our experience with Mundors. As yeah. far as time frame, this this roller coaster was such a mind job for me. And of course, you and I were texting the whole time. I, you know, I was I was so focused on it until I just I I like had too much, and I just needed to kind of like just go with the flow and not hyperanalyze it. And it's 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 like I it. it, it I don't know, 300 hours or something you were asking about the time frame, but at some point I lost, uh, the hyper focus like interest and, and I just, it's my system. And so I listen to it. So anytime, whatever it is, it is what it is. And, and I, and I wasn't ever at a point because of that, maybe fatigue that, that I said, this is finished. Um, so I let go and then, and then now I just know my amp. And so I think I let, because I was stopping analyzing, I just kind of let every time I listen to my amp, that's my amp. And of course I love my amp now. I loved my amp then at 200 hours or something like that. So it's, I just, I love my amp, but, uh, but I was really focused on the, the roller coaster for I don't know, the first 200 hours, lots of text to you. And it was a very fascinating experience. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. So I encourage, you know, enjoy enjoy the process. That's what I encourage. If not, it's okay. And you could uh buy some dummy loads and and get it over with. But the process is kind of fun. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Okay, thanks uh Dave for for writing and uh glad we could uh answer a question for you and and uh communicate here. So uh our last question of the evening before we go into our uh two albums of the week comes to us from Paul Willen um, from Grays Lake, Illinois. And uh, Darren, we mentioned, is Senior Analog Design Engineer for PS Audio. Um, this is, Paul is a, uh, a PS Audio guy, so he's got a, a system with some um, interesting components, but plenty of stuff that... Um, You've either have a, had a hand in in building, or you help uh, you help support because it's a, a product. So uh, we thought we could we could come in strong with a a good uh, answer for this guy. Paul writes, "Hello, Darren and Duncan. I love listening to your show. My system consists of a PS Audio BHK preamp, PS Audio Directstream Senior DAC running Sunlight, PS Audio P10, PS Audio M1200 amplifiers that you designed, uh, Darren designed." Powering Martin Logan CLX art speakers, which I love, by the way. Complemented by a JL Audio CR1 crossover and a pair of JL Audio Fathom F113 subwoofers. Also, really big fan of the JL Audio Fathom F113. Um, my source component is Rune Nucleus Core with an Arlic uh, G2 streaming transport connected to a Matrix SBIT of 2 with a 9 volt S booster. 
Oh, S booster. S booster makes great uh, external power supplies or or uh, alternate power supplies via a Wild World Wire World Platinum Starlight Eight USB and an Audio Audio Quest Dragon Forty Eight I Squared S. Okay, so that's an HDMI. Yep. And a fully modified Oppo Two Hundred Three. Um, SACD CD transport with a nice squared S output board. Okay, that's what I thought was one of the modifications is the uh, PS Audio Spec I squared S out for the Oppo, which I'm imagining allows you to uh, send SACD out. I use all AudioQuest NRG Z3 cables on my source components and AudioQuest Thunderbird speaker cables. <clears throat> uh, and you've got experience with the Thunderbird right or was that a different model i'm talking to you darren uh i uh i i don't oh okay yeah i i don't have a direct experience was it firebird that you were firebird okay, okay bird okay. i do yeah I was the curious thunderbird what bird. i i don't i i want to but i look i've heard them before but i just don't have direct personal experience gotcha yeah i was using an audio quest thunder power cable on my p10 in both m1200 amplifiers the system is fully balanced audio quest earth xlr interconnects I recently upgraded the uh, AudioQuest Thunder from the wall to the P10 with an AudioQuest Hurricane, and the improvement was not subtle at all. A complete game changer. My question is, would changing the AudioQuest Thunder power cables on, uh, to Hurricane on the M1200 amps make as much of an improvement as it did on the P10? Is changing the power cables on a Class D amplifier as significant to changing the power cables on a Class AB amplifier? I appreciate any advice on this subject. I apologize to the many who are tired about hearing about the power cable tweaks. <laughs> I, I loved that line, by the way. But but I got to stop and say, like, what a cool thing that someone can do where you have a podcast by the designer of your amplifiers and you have a specific question about your amplifiers and you can just ask the designer. Yeah. Sure. I, that's cool. Yeah, I wish yeah, I could yeah. do that with lots of stuff that I come mm-hmm. in contact with. So here we are, here we are Paul, uh, answering your question. Um, what do you say? Yeah, um, I, it's no secret that the power plant power cable is the most important, or if you have a conditioner mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that feeds the rest of the system, or yeah, some sort of power distribution. Uh, that's definitely the power cable to change first is the one feeding that. Right. Um, past, after that, you still get massive improvements as you start to, you know, flesh out and go for full, um, uh, you know, a full stack of, of, uh, of power cables. You call it a loom. Loom. There you go. I was searching for it (laughs) because you always use that word. I like that. Um, yeah. Full loom of power cables. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the answer is that, yes, uh, you'll hear a very large uh, uh, improvement uh, upgrading the power cables for the M1200s. They are very revealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are way more revealing than M700s. Yep. Uh, they are way more picky. They have the ability to, uh, you know, present a 3d soundstage more accurately than hmm. m700s do um so they have more inner detail retrieval uh and with that comes the 
the capability of, of really tapping into what a great power cable brings to the table, Yeah, which is that, you know, incredible 3d space that a power cable can, a good power cable can bring. Um, so, uh, to answer your question, uh, it would be a big upgrade on the M 1200s. Uh, you should try upgrading the power cables. You should do it. Yeah. Yeah. You should do it. Uh, little PS here. Uh, he's curious if we've heard the CLX art. Uh, I have having, um, worked for, uh, the music room. I've, I've tested a pair. I love those things. Uh, he mentions that Galen Garice of I, uh, Beldenite, formerly of Beldenite Iconoclast, now of, uh, a blue jeans cable mm. Iconoclast. Uh, and he uses those speakers to help him develop the Iconoclast cables. So I didn't know that. Nice. Very cool little yeah. piece of information. Hmm. Galen's a great guy. Oh yeah. Well, thanks Paul. Um, sounds like, uh, uh, let us know actually what happens and, uh, and we'll hear, we'll hear what, uh, happens, but it sounds like from the designer himself from the horse's mouth, you've got it. That's his, a uh, great idea for upgrade. Okay. That was our last question. Thanks for everybody, uh, writing us. Um, keep them coming. Yeah, uh, please any, do anything on y'all's minds. Um, we're happy to jump on it. Generally we want to do, you know, two questions a week, maybe three, but it, it's going to, it's going to come down to what questions are out there and we'll do more of these question episodes whenever we need to, uh, to answer a whole bunch. So hope you guys enjoyed this topic, uh, question topic today. And, uh, I guess without further ado, let's get into the, the album, album of, of the week. week albums this time. Albums. Yes. Yes. So <clears throat> there's one album we've been, uh, we've almost recommended a few times. Um, and that'll be the second album because it shares some similarity and feeling and mood and vibe and tonal structure and, and whatnot to the album that we landed on for tonight. But also because we were trying to shake it up and we're shaking it up and we love yeah. to do that. Yeah. Why like not? Shake it up. Life's short. Life should be fun. This hobby should be fun. We always talk about that. So we're going to give you a little extra fun this week. The first album. Do you want to talk about the first album? Sure. Yeah. A man from Great Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great, great man. Great man from Great Britain. Yeah, great man. Um, His name is Tom Mish. Mm -hmm. And the album is uh, Geography. Yes. And uh, I've been, you know, listening to this album for a, a couple of years. 2018, I think. Um, yeah, it came out in 2018. Uh, you know, Tom Mish, uh, for those that aren't familiar with him, he has a incredible, like, soulful way of communicating, uh, not only via his voice, but via his guitar work he's a guitar player Mm -hmm. and uh, his chord structures sometimes are just so you know soulful and funky in this um you know they get you right like you know kind of in the gut and in the heart Mm -hmm. his his uh his structures and uh and the intro track to this album speaks to that yeah it does does um, and, and many different other areas of the album are going to, 
you know, hit that spot for you, like in the way that he, um, will communicate via his chord structures are just like, you're just, you know, you'll feel this soulful energy in you. The um, first track you played was a, um, was a cover. Isn't she lovely? Yeah. Classic Stevie wonder. Yep. And it hit me just bam. Uh, yeah. I was like, this is it. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it's, (laughs) it's like super simple too. It's just the way that his timing and, and also the way that he will maybe elaborate, um, what is like a usually is like a, a single note into a uh, a chord, um, yeah, or an arpeggio or something. Yeah, the the way yeah the way that he fleshes that out from some cover uh, will be so soulful and will add so much body to to what he's doing and so much substance to it. Um, so. And he has and he has eminent control yeah. over himself. That was one of the things you pointed oh, out. Yeah, yeah. Was this dynamics that he plays with, and, yeah. then, and then the control. Yeah. You know, one of the things yeah. I mentioned uh, in the past that P- P- Pat Metheny talks about, uh, a famous guitar player, um, one of my favorite guitar players, actually my favorite guitar player, um, is playing at half volume all the time so that he has room to go up and room mm. to go down. Mm. You know, and yeah. with a, with an emphasis mm. on dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he he does that really well. Um, he also Tomish rolls with some incredible musicians. Oh yeah, the Tomish circle. Yeah, yeah. Is... Yusef Days is in that. Circle. And we've shared uh, Yusef Days' album. Uh, yep. Yusef Days is the drummer. Yep. Yes. Um, and and a lot of uh, honestly uh, musicians that I cannot name off the top of my head. But yeah, me either. But the people that he. Uh, you know, records with are always just phenomenal. So yeah, it's like the use. Uh, it's like the Tom Mish tree of musicians yeah, is, is is like worth going down every rabbit hole. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's you know he's he's younger. I mean now he yeah. he might be you know twenty seven this year. I I mean <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. I mean this album's already what like uh, three years old. You know yeah. now. I mean yeah. it's you know it's. It's unbelievable um, the level at which he's composing at um, in it, this very specific genre of, you know, uh, soulful, funky, jazzy kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, way of, of yeah. communicating. So, and he anyways. has a new album out called uh, the Quarantine Sessions. Quarantine Sessions, yeah, uh, done in the really, really great, great album. Yeah. Not quite as audiophile and, and on a great yeah. system really capturing you like this one, which is why yeah. we went to this. Music's A-plus, though, right. and it's it's more simplistic. It doesn't have uh, a full band with them all the time there. Mm-hmm. But um, if you are if you do really like geography, move on to uh, the quarantine sessions and check out... Uh, Check out the James Blake cover, the Wilhelm's um, scream. Is yeah, that the, the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, Wilhelm scream. Um, yeah, ch- which is a ch- famous that painting, out. I think. Oh, is it? <coughs> uh, yeah. And I like the first track, which has this bass line that's just like doom, 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 or something like that. It's just gets that, you. That album is super good too. So yeah. anyway, just a recommendation if you do like uh, if you do like geography, move on to some of his other stuff mm-hmm. because it's. It's all really good. His last name is yeah. M-I-S-C-H. Yes. So it's T-O-M-S-M-I-S-C-H. Yep. Yep. 
Our second album comes from uh, by way of France, not uh, Great Britain. Similar kind of something similar of a feel. Uh, this open, free kind of like vibe wrapped into that funky, uh, soulful kind of thing. Fellow by the name of FKJ, uh, which stands for French Kiwi Juice, which is the name of his, uh, you know, uh, actual full album. Uh, in the past, he's released EPs, and I, I came to discover FKJ way back with his Take Off EP and uh killer killer eps that he's put out but he put in his uh, another ep called ylang ylang and uh it's killer but but his full album french kiwi juice is is a real real piece of of music a crazy good piece of music um and so we urge uh we urge you guys to check that out now there's a track on there i'm trying to remember um that we that we love it's really skyline's good better give you up is good um i do remember on his yelang lang ep um 100 oh, 100 roses 100 is, roses is, is awesome yeah. awesome track on awesome yelang lang yeah EP. it's great um yeah, check on, that out on the french kiwi juice album that's a beginning to end play and uh mm-hmm. that that one's gonna get you where you want to go um mm-hmm. Now listen to these two in context with each other, and you've got two albums of uh, such a killer vibe and uh, and extremely well recorded, extremely well produced. You know, just can't recommend these these uh, two albums enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a, a little bit of French, yeah, a little, little bit of British, yeah, all in there. It's yeah. like different flavors on a, on a similar vibe. Yeah, we, we kind of get a kick out of that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. All right, well, uh, that will be on our albums page and also on the front page of our website, uh, thehifipodcast.net. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody, to this question-rich episode and and uh, just, you know, our chance to toss things up a little bit. Yep. Um, please enjoy those albums. But with that, this has been another Hi-Fi Podcast with Darren and Duncan. I'm Duncan. I'm Darren. And we'll catch you next week. All right, see you guys. The Hi-Fi Podcast with Darren and Duncan is produced by Darren Myers and Duncan Taylor and is copyright 2020 of Slope Productions. The intro and outro music is provided by Denver's Color Red Studios and features the song Bangs by the band Many Colors. 